welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, your host. So glad to have you along for this ride. And today we're going to be talking about a subject that I think is very close to a lot of Americans' hearts, genealogy. That's what our first guest has written a book about, but she is a top travel writer. In fact, I've known her for many years as that. And so, of course, travel comes into this. The book is called The Soul of the Family Tree, Ancestors, Stories, and the Spirits We Inherit. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Lori Erickson. Well, thank you for having me, Pauline. Well, it's a delightful book and uh, very moving at points. What was your initial impulse to write this? And I know, having read the book, but that's a very funny story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think I got into genealogy at about the same time a lot of people do. I call it the quintessential hobby of of middle age, (laughs) Uh, that I think as we start losing family members, older family members, that we have a sense that uh, you know, we have more of our people on the other side than this side. And I think we want to have a, a sense of connecting with those who have gone before and also saving the stories of the people that we still do have. Right, right. And so you did what something that my husband did. And his, he, he spit into a, a, a vial. <laughs> And he actually yes. found that he has Neanderthal uh, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. ancestors as well, which is why he, he doesn't have a hairy back. But anyway, <laughs> that might be too much information. You somewhat started that way, but you, you had been dabbling in this a little before too, right? Well, I come from a small town in Iowa that's strongly Norwegian-American, uh, Decorah, Iowa. And I myself am of Norwegian ancestry. And so I sort of grew up marinated in that identity. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until that I really started researching my family roots that I became very curious, not only about my individual genetic heritage, but also the cultural transmission and why my family was the way it was, why my town was the way it was. So really, it was about connecting to much larger stories. And it quickly became sort of an all-consuming passion that took me to Norway and to Newfoundland to research Viking heritage there, as well as throughout the Midwest and places closer to home. Right. And, and, it, and that was what was so interesting to me. I mean, it's a, a far-reaching story, and it has many tentacles. You go to a Viking festival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you go... You go to the place in the United States where your ancestors probably never went, but where the ancient Vikings did mm-hmm. and formed mm-hmm. a settlement. Let's talk about, about some of those travel experiences. Let's talk first about Lance O'Meadow. Am I pronouncing that right in Canada? I th- well, I think it's called Lanza Meadows. They sort of okay. uh, slide it together. It's probably not very French, but I think right. that's the way the locals pronounce it. Yeah. And what was that? Why did you decide to go there? Well, my name is Lori Erickson. And for much of my life, I have jokingly said that I'm a descendant of Leif Erickson, who was the, the Norse explorer, who was most likely the first European to land in North America about the year 1000. And for a long time, that was considered to be, well, let me back up. The, the story is told in the Icelandic sagas, which tell of the, the Viking settlements of Iceland and Greenland 
and and then the the settlement of Vinland, it's called. And for a long time, researchers weren't sure how much truth there was in that. But then in the 1960s, archaeologists actually found a major Viking settlement in the very tip of Newfoundland. And it almost certainly was connected to Leif Erikson. And so when I started tracing my my roots, I realized I really wanted to learn more about this this intrepid explorer who I'd always claimed as a, an ancestor, admittedly on the basis of nothing more than the similarity of our names and ethnic heritage. But but it's a fascinating site. It's in the, you know, talk about the middle of nowhere, this windswept spot on the edge of the continent. Well, I love uh, you. You describe your drive there and you're suddenly <laughs> seeing moose and yeah. whales in the distance. And mm-hmm. it really is like going back in time as well mm-hmm. as going to this out of the way place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to, in a sense, what I'm trying to do in my book is is to break open the the study of genealogy, you know, that there's nothing wrong with the way it's often done. But I was really interested in these larger stories, in yeah. some of the quirkiness of it, and the way that we can, in a sense, claim ancestors. And that's that's what I've done with, with Leif Erikson. Well, for you, you say that you might have had a recessive gene from the Vikings, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, meaning that though your parents never, ever wanted to travel, this was something they thought was a strange impulse, recessively from the ancient Vikings, you had that. But when you go to this place in, in Canada where you meet reenactors, you learn both about the good side of, of Viking life and the bad side. I, I, can you talk a little bit about what you saw in that settlement? I thought it was just so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's a, a historical park coordinated by the national government in Canada, and they do a beautiful job of interpreting the archaeological research there. And so they have the actual um, the outlines of the buildings that were there. They're um, marked with, with turf walls, but then they've recreated several of the buildings. And that's the part that's really fascinating. They have um, first-person reenactors who are dressed as Vikings, who live as Vikings, and so you go into this turf-covered longhouse, and it is like stepping back a thousand years. And the story of the Vikings is complicated, and it's not a pretty story in some ways. Um, but one of the things I learned during my research was that only a small percentage of, of the Norsemen of the time went raiding, maybe about 10%. The rest of people were poor, landless peasants, basically. But and and also that uh, the Vikings were not all raiders. Um, sometimes they were explorers, and they were certainly businessmen. They were always on the lookout for a lucky break, uh, <laughs> one sort or another. And so, uh, Lonzo Meadows in Newfoundland really gives that full picture of Vikings. And and I think people do two things with the Vikings: either they romanticize them too much, or they focus only on the violent part of the Vikings. Stuff. And I think the real picture is is more multifaceted than that. Well, and it's interesting to me. I mean, you're trying to figure out who you are by where you came from. And you said something very moving. You say, genealogy makes it different to claim the moral high ground. Because mm. in learning about the Vikings, you, you speak to somebody who's reenacting a, being a slave. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't, un, I hadn't understood that slavery was such a big part of Viking society. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yes, during the Viking Age, which was from um, about the 8th through the 11th centuries, it, it's, historians believe that perhaps 20 to 30% of the population in Scandinavia were enslaved. 
slavery was, you know, was new. Again, it was nuanced in the Scandinavian world that uh, people were taken as captives. Often they were slaves initially, and then in a generation or two, they became fully accepted members of society. But slavery was absolutely part of the Viking world, and uh, that that's a sobering thing. And and I think it does tie into a larger national conversation about people in the United States today who have to you know face the 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 reality of the fact that their ancestors owned slaves or traded in slaves or were enslaved. And this is it's a complicated legacy. But one of the points I try to make in my book is that. It's not unique to the United States that uh, it, it was part of many different cultures. And also that point about when you do genealogy, it's hard to claim the high moral ground because all of us have a mixture of good and bad um, in, in, our, in our heritage. And yeah. it's part of being human. And, and for most of human history, life was extraordinarily difficult. And people made a lot of moral compromises as a result. Yeah. You also go to a dedicated library for tracing this sort of genealogy to learn mm-hmm. about your great, great grandfather and grandmother. <laughs> I think I'm getting that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you learn that your great grandfather had a child out of wedlock before he married your great grandmother and came to the United States. And I thought it was so interesting. Your genealogist could not trace the mystery of what happened to her. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. said he was going to go off and try again in the book. Did he, was he able to find it? Well, he he did. I did get a report um, afterwards, and and it was still very vague, and so it's not quite clear what happened to her. In fact, one of my hopes for the book is that once it gets out in circulation, I hope someone might tell me what happened to this yeah. this young woman who was ten when my great great grandfather left his homeland in Norway and came to the United States. Yes, the center I went to is the Norwegian American Genealogical Center in Madison, Wisconsin. And one of the things I discovered in researching my book is no matter what ethnic background you're researching, there is a group, there is a center devoted to that. And and it's full of people who know a huge amount and are really happy to help. So uh, it, it's like a band of brothers almost out there in the genealogical world, I think. A lot of people wanting wanting to to give you help and advice. Right. You also went to a number of historic reenactments. And I thought it was interesting that you delved into the history of Mm -hmm. historic reenactments. So before we talk about the ones you went to, when did they become popular? Because I I didn't realize it was such a fairly recent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the there have always, well, for a long time, there have been sort of one-off reenactments like, um, you know, the 300th anniversary of Napoleon's defeat or something like that. But reenacting as sort of an ongoing hobby really was given life um, at when the uh, anniversary of the, the Civil War came about in 1961, the 100th, 100th anniversary. And that really ignited uh, the reenacting world in the United States. And then that spread uh, to right. other historical eras, and and it's a thriving subculture. Though different eras are more popular in different times, and that was one of the interesting things that Vikings are sort of hot right now. I think in part because of um, all the stuff in popular culture about Vikings. The Civil War stuff is probably less popular now, and so you know there's a bit of fad in all of this. But I also think it's a wonderful way of 
learning about history. I, I, that's one of the things that I wish Americans knew more about was history. I, it's a real passion of mine. And I've, I feel like we learn so much about ourselves in learning about uh, what shaped this, the larger culture right. and the larger nation. And well, so reenactors, or reenactments are a great way to uh, learn. Well, not only to learn, but to viscerally feel mm-hmm. what it would have been like to live in that day. Now, you can't fully feel it. As you say mm-hmm. in the book, those people were living with anti- antibiotics. They were living you know, without air conditioning. Mm-hmm. They, they had very, very tough lives. But you, a lot of people who are into this are weaving their own clothes and mm-hmm. dying with, with plants and doing all kinds of extreme things to mm-hmm. make sure that they're going to be presenting a picture of that life that says authentic as possible. What, what did you experience when you did this? Well, I was fortunate to go with someone who's part of that world. And uh, she lent me a, a, a Norse dress, you know, something that a sort of you know, run of the run of the mills woman would have worn, not someone real poor, not someone real rich, but it was a, a simple linen shift and it had an over an apron over it and two brooches at the shoulders. And I I thought simply putting on the clothes was transformational because once you look like someone from the past, you start to feel different. And so I think also another part of it was walking around the encampment. There were maybe a hundred people or so there. They were they were weaving and doing blacksmithing and, you know, all the sorts of things that people would have done around the year one thousand. And they looked like Vikings too. I mean, not, you know, they they still had eyeglasses and modern sandals and things like that. Well, I thought that was interesting. That it was part of the etiquette that if you couldn't get something was that was authentic, you were okay. supposed to wear something that was totally an anachronism, so nobody right. would think right. like you wore. Uh, I think you know, uh, athletics uh, sandals, which yes. clearly uh-huh. would not have been around back then. Right, right. Now these people have a great respect for their teaching role, and they 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 want to present things accurately. And so I had a marvelous, that was one of the single best things I did during the research for my book was to pretend to be a Viking woman for a weekend, even though by the end of the weekend, I was really glad to get out of those clothes and get into (laughs) warm clothes. It started to rain and it was cold. And one of the comments I make in the book was probably the single most authentic thing about that experience was being wet, damp, and miserable. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Right, Right. Yeah. And then, of course, in your journey, you went back to the homeland. Um, <laughs> yes. What was it like to do that, to go back to Norway? Well, part of what made it so meaningful was that I went with my two adult sons, my husband and my sister, and we uh, went to this small plot of rocky land that my great-great-grandfather Hans had, where he had been essentially a sharecropper. He never owned land, but he worked on this land. And and the experience of being in that in that spot, and it you know, Norway itself, as I'm sure you know, is extravagantly beautiful. Sure. And my ancestors weren't in one of those super, super beautiful parts. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was nice, but it wasn't like spectacularly beautiful. But it was the most meaningful place to be because I had this sense of, of linking, linking my story with his story and realizing all that he had experienced in order for me to stand where I was. And so, and I also think traveling to that place with my relatives, with my sons and my sister, especially that you know, it's, it sort of weaves a web of connection that 
is hard to get in any other way. And I think that's why people do genealogy is for that sort of electric jolt of, of connection of both in the past and, and in the present. Well, connection and understanding after Mm -hmm. having taken this journey, do you think of your own life very differently? Oh, absolutely. I think a, a major thing I've learned is to not feel sorry for myself, or at least try not to, you know, just have this right. sense of how hard it was being uh, living for most of human history and how fortunate I am to have dental care. You know, I had a, a huge filling that fell out the other day and, <laughs> and, I, and I just had this sense of what it would be like, well, I would have that tooth pulled and I, you know, I probably wouldn't have very many teeth left at this point in my life. And that was among the least of the difficulties that people faced. And so I think a sense of appreciation for what we have is a big, big part of what's changed. But also, I think being part of this much larger story and not thinking of myself so much as an individual, but rather someone who's the product of a lot of forces from the past. And also realizing that I will shape the, the story that's passed on to my, to my descendants. And so it gives you a sense of responsibility, too, I think, when you do genealogy. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful book. Once again, it's called The Soul of the Family Tree. Thank you so much, Lori, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, thank you for having me, Pauline. Our next guest is David McCullough. He is the founder, co-founder, I should say, and the CEO of the American Exchange Project, which is a project for teenagers, but it takes the classic exchange and does something very unique with it. First of all, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, David. Thank you so much, Pauline. I'm I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you. Well, tell our listeners... How does this type of exchange differ from the classic exchange where teenagers go, say, to Europe or to Asia or to Africa for a couple of months to learn the language and learn about the culture? What is the American Exchange Project focusing on? Well, I think you've kind of hit it. So we are an exchange program with a little twist. And our little twist is you don't actually leave the United States. It's our belief that you don't need a passport in your pocket to explore a different culture or to see a place that's really different from your hometown if you're an American citizen. So through AEP, you can travel abroad in your own country. And we send graduated high school seniors to go live in a town, an American town, that's really different from the one that they grew up in in the summer after their senior year. Wow. But there's more to it than that, right? Don't they spend time before they go to the town also doing Zoom calls? Or was that just a pandemic era uh, thing that you were doing? A little bit of both. Yeah. We, so during, we were the geniuses that started a traveling program during the pandemic. So, <laughs> um, we, we, as so many did, we pivoted and created this Zoom uh, program, getting together kids from different parts of the country. Now, the whole idea, there is a bit of a social mission to what we do. It's not just about fun and exploration. Sure. Um, we're hoping to bring back together our very divided country through this exchange program. And so when we ran our Zoom calls, and we ran almost 500 of them across about a year and a half's worth of time, our students, you know, we, we, we've had a great success with our Zoom program. And so we've added it into what we're going to do now that the world is emerging out of the pandemic. So students get together on Zoom and hang out and get to know one, one another in the spring of their high school senior year. And then they hit the road 
uh, in the summer. Now, how do you decide who to pair up? Because I would think, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about red states and blue states. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it more granularly, often it's the cities in red states that are pretty bright blue. And it's the rural areas in blue states that can be very red. And I know it's not just about politics, but that's a big part of it, right? It's a huge part of it. And, and if you dig into our politics and, and, and start digging into why we vote the way we do, we'll start finding reasons that have to do with culture and history and class and how the adults in our community make a living. And so we really try to focus on places that are not just politically different for our kids, but demographically different geographically different. And the beauty of it is that for a lot of towns in America, those um, those characteristics are layered. And so we try to pair kids with towns that are very different from the ones they've grown up in. So if you're a kid from the suburbs of Boston, you're probably going to go to a rural area that might vote conservative. If you're a kid from downtown Philadelphia, you might also go to a rural conservative area. But if you're from Kilgore, Texas or Sitka, Alaska, you're probably going to a big city or a suburb of one kind or another. Wow. Well, can, I'm, I'm curious to know how this went, because this isn't just theoretical. You've, you've now done this with one class of students. Can you give us some anecdotes of, of what it was like for them? It was terrific. We, we sent, well, originally we sent 18 kids on an exchange. We had 11 from California and Massachusetts who went to Lake Charles, Louisiana and Kilgore, Texas. And on our last day in Texas, two rather sheepish seniors walked up to me and said, uh, oh, Mr. McCullough, we're having a lot of fun. Can we maybe go to California, too? And we said, sure. So we grew from 18 to 20 while wow. we were there. Um, we had a ball. We, and, and I think the kids also unpacked on their own some really valuable and interesting conversations and some very top topics that are very difficult to talk about in this day and age. Like what? Well, let's see. What's a good example? So... On our first day up here in, in Boston, we walked some of our students from Louisiana and Kilgore, Texas around Wellesley High School. Now, Wellesley is a very affluent town here in the suburbs of Boston, and their public school, the public high school, really reflects that level of affluence. About 15 minutes into the tour, uh, our students from Louisiana and Texas started crying. It was unfair that kids here in Massachusetts get what they got for high school, and we got what we wow. got in Louisiana. Oh my goodness. And it really accentuated the, the class barrier. They were walking around a high school that had a yoga studio and wow. a pottery uh, studio and a metal arts shop and Black Lives Matter flags hanging from the walls and a gender spectrum unicorn uh, taped to the windows of the classroom. That's not the case in every high school in the country and certainly not in their high school in Louisiana. And that was very different for them. It was new for them. It was foreign for them. And they're fresh out of high school. However, here's where it got interesting. Those students had spent a week at that point hanging out with the kids from Wellesley, and they become really close friends. And so when the Wellesley students saw tears in the eyes of their friends, they realized right away what was giving them these kind of weird and torn feelings in their stomach. And so the Wellesley kids, they weren't confused. They actually felt guilty. However, because the Lake Charles kids and the Kilgore kids had spent some time in Wellesley, they knew that unlike Lake Charles and Kilgore, where people live because that's where our families have always lived, people, parents move to Wellesley when children are young to raise their kids, to send them to the great school system there. And then after the kids graduate, they leave. And so there is kind of a um, hit and miss or a sort of touch and go, I should say, relationship with the town of Wellesley for a lot of folks there. Fascinating. The don't feel guilty. You didn't pick to live here. You didn't pick to be born into all of this. 
And sure. instead of uh, instead of animosity, what happened was a really deep conversation about what do we do with what we've been given. And I think at the age of eighteen, to be able to have peers that you can have that conversation with in a healthy way is the beginning of a really important lesson in civics and what it means to be an American citizen. And is a great headspace to be in as our 18-year-olds are moving into that age of citizenship and voting and kind of emerging into our society. Well, that's an example of uh, the kids seeing a very stark physical example of the differences in their lives. But they must also have different belief systems. How did they bridge that? I, I read an article about your program, which is why I wanted you to have, have you on this podcast in which it talked about two different students from very different backgrounds fighting over the Confederate flag. That is such a hot button issue. How do kids that age come to some mutual understanding about that? I think the area of understanding that they come to is is not necessarily agreeing on everything, but it's an understanding of what their experiences are like um, in different parts of the country. And it's the realization that our experiences are really different. So the students you're talking about, one is a white student from Wellesley, Massachusetts. The other is a black girl from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And they had a contested conversation about the Confederate flag in which our student from Massachusetts, who's grown up in an environment that, you know, teaches him that racism is evil as it is, and, and showed him, the, you know, to really uh, condemn the Confederate flag, uh, pushed his opinions on a student, the black girl, Alana is her name, who grew up in Louisiana and saw the Confederate flag everywhere. And so for her, it was normalized. For her, it represented something other than slavery. Now, she yeah. doesn't defend the Confederacy. She doesn't defend slavery or their sure. viewpoints. But for her, she was trying to say, you know, who are you to tell me how I should feel about this topic when I'm the one living it every day? And he was sort of, and so we, we have our opinions about these things that happen in other parts of the country without ever having to really live through them. I think more acutely than the Confederate flag, our kids really saw this when they met the parents or when they met the children of, um, of, of folks who work in petrochemical facilities. You know, these kids had a very progressive attitudes about climate change and that, you know, gas in these petrochemical facilities are evil. And, and should be done away with. But then they didn't really realize that that would put a lot of people in the South out of work. And so if you're going to have that opinion about climate change, you also have to have an opinion about what it means to live without these resources and the employment opportunities they create. Wow. Well, it sounds like amazing discussions were had and eyes were opened. And how do people listening to this podcast thinking, wow, I wish this was happening in, in my community? How are you going to grow and, and how can people get involved? Sure. So we're expanding to 40 partner towns in 20 states in the coming year. But my great dream is to have this available for every American student. I don't think this is going to fix all of our problems. I don't think this is the silver bullet, but it's certainly a good beginning. And it's certainly the long game for our young people. I think we saw on this trip that um, we need to understand each other more and we need to break down some of the stereotypes we hold about each other in our heads before we can have healthy conversations. So my dream is to create a program that'll allow every American high school senior to travel across the country for free in the summer after their senior year. I mean, imagine if that were possible. Imagine if we stapled to every diploma we gave out a ticket to a town that was totally different from the one we've grown up in. So long answer to your question, Pauline, we spent two and a half years designing an immensely scalable national domestic exchange program. If folks out there 
would like to join or think that their community might benefit from our program, go to our website, www.americanexchangeproject.org, where there's a contact us tab you can write in and you'll hear from me or Zoe, our marketing director shortly, and uh, we'll begin the process. Well, I wish you the best of luck. It sounds amazing. As the mother of teenagers, I'm thrilled that this exists. Uh, And as an American, I'm thrilled this exists because we we all need to just start talking with one another, I think. And, And this is a really good start. Thank you so much for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Thank you very much, Pauline. And that's it for this week's travel show. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you, as always, a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Watching cable Well it feels so far